Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Young and Dangerous and Fong Sayuk 2. And it's the start of the adventures of the, of the young, mostly impossibly handsome trial punks and their journey towards uh, rising in the ranks in the Hongqing Trial Society. And that comes in the form of Young and Dangerous from 1996, the first movie. There were several. In 1996, uh, there were also a series of uh, sequels uh, spanning a few years, a prequel, there were spin-offs, uh, so, and in a total overall sense, uh, this was a um, major hit at the time. It was a cultural phenomenon in a way, and even it's a sequel as a side note, Young and Dangerous 2. It was out before the cinema run of part one had ended, so either it was planned, or they uh, shot at the same time, or they saw an opportunity to shoot another one really quick. And get it in there. I wouldn't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if that was it. That they conceived it really quickly. Shot it really quickly. We'll, we'll see if Paul knows anything about that. Uh, a sequel that came out fast. But not as fast. Was the follow up to the Jet Li vehicle Fong Sayuk. And we're here to review the sequel. Simply called Fong Sayuk 2. And I'm Kenny B. And with me after having copied Ikin Chang's uh, tattoo. From Young and Dangerous. And put it on his chest. Is East Green West Green. Paul Fox. So how did it turn out? Well, as good as uh, doing something in Sharpie can ever turn out, because uh, I'm afraid of needles, so it had to be Sharpies all the way. <laughs> You're standing there in front of your mirror. <laughs> That's it. That looks yeah. okay. <laughs> and then it's on the and then because you did it in a the mirror, then it's actually yeah, reversed. It's on the other side. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> Damn it. There was a loose coup movie where you had that kind of um, uh, tattoo. Uh, the Sylvia Chang movie, Run Tiger, uh, Run Papa Run. I believe, and mm, yeah. I believe he had a, a tattoo like that. But because he had a kid, he went and changed that tattoo to a cute animal instead, right? So it wasn't an intimidating triad tattoo. But now that he was a dad, he had a cute uh, bear or a tiger on his chest instead because of his kid. That just proves that Louis Koo does it better than he can change tattoo wise anyway <laughs> in movies. Yeah. So there it is. This is the part of he can change uh, career that I care about zero percent of because there was no promise there. I care about Ikin Chang even for a second in movies nowadays. That makes me really happy. Well, what was the movie he had a cameo in where he just uh, ran into the frame and sort of was a little mean to the leading man and lady? What was that movie? God, God, God. Uh, um, it was uh, the one we just watched last year, um, the Yuppie Fantasia 3. That's it, that's it. He uh, was the ex of uh, the lady there and he came in there and uh, he called Lawrence Chang a pervert. That was that was mean, but it was fun to see Ikin for a minute. In nineteen ninety six, uh, zero minutes would make me happy. So he he grew, <laughs> he grew, his charisma grew. We'll we'll talk more of Ikin Chang and all of that. But uh, seeing as you are the um, uh, honorary co-host and co-producer, East Green West Green is a podcast out there in the podcasting world. And uh, why don't you uh, plug it in uh, whatever way you like, sir? Sure, it is a podcast where we talk about a little bit of news and a little bit of current cinema things that are happening on the big screen and sometimes on the small screen and platforms like netflix and amazon and other places uh myself and my co-host kevin ma we get together and we try to talk about uh hong kong cinema or china cinema and sometimes other asian cinema um and whatever strikes our fancy and you have an um a healthy obsession with um, a reality show that I've never heard of and for me to sit down with a reality show it's gonna take well one I have to turn the television box on I haven't had that on for years but uh, uh, what, what is the house show that you you and Kevin are into and it's not even an American show it's a nation reality show yes it's a Japanese reality show um, called Terrace House and I guess we like it because it is very 
Japanese in terms of it doesn't use a lot of uh, traditional sort of um, American reality show conventions. They don't bring people on just for the sake of being wild or zany or... Yeah, yeah, you've never mentioned that they get loaded and have sex with each other. So it sounds like it's a it's a t- template to a degree. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the idea behind the show is that they bring in um, usually six house guests, three men and three women, all young 20-somethings usually. Um, sometimes the ages extend down into the late teens, but... It's really there to see them live together as roommates, and sometimes they date, sometimes relationships form, sometimes there are, you know, arguments, as with any people who live together and maybe rub each other the wrong way. And as a house guest decides to leave, they leave of their own accord. They're not voted off. You know, it's not a pop contest, but, you know, they just get to a point. They say, okay, I'm, you know, I've, I've got a job opportunity or I need to, you know, I think I've done all that I came to do here. And then they, you know, go and another house guest will come on and replace them. And this happens over a series of six to ten episodes for a season, technically. But they throw um, a couple seasons within the span of a year sometimes. And they've bounced around. Um, The first two series were in uh, Japan. The third series was called Aloha State. And that's where I sort of found out about it. It took place in Hawaii because I love Hawaii and and uh, Hawaiian culture, and I was like, well, Japanese show in Hawaii, that's got to be interesting. So that's when I started watching it, and that's the first season that Netflix really got on board with and started heavily promoting. So I you know, I saw it in my feed, and then I watch, went back and watched um, the originals, and it's a co-produced show between Station in Japan and Netflix proper, um, but the international release is delayed. So right now, the newest season, which uh, it's new boys and something new boys and girls or something i forget the the title of it but it's actually running now in japan but it won't pop up on international netflix until mid-march i want to say um so they delay it for the international release but it's pretty much week to week um in japan what a lovely non-cynical uh, broadcast space that this seems to occupy because the the longer reality show culture runs the more it seems like they up the ante as i said mm. getting them loaded and having them arguing there's conflicts and it, it's all like a very 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 rude and lewd because that sells yeah. and here's a show that uh, seems to be nice about it rather than sensational the, the new the new series excuse me is, is called uh, opening new doors but uh Whereas before they've been kind of city-based, this new season I think is a little bit more rural. They're basing it at a house that has an onsen, which is um, basically a house that sits on a Japanese hot spring. So I guess that's going to form, you know, some of the basis of the interactions and things. And uh, you know, it's 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 very slow moving compared to American television shows. It's not mean spirited usually. But the, uh, the the thing that I think Kevin mentioned about it that he really loves about it was that if you're into Japanese culture at all, even you know if you're somebody who likes Japanese movies and you want to lo- know a little bit more about the way the Japanese mindset sees dating and relationships, you know, and and I, I, I speak of this and beyond like for me, for a long time dating was anime, right? <laughs> what what they do on anime shows has got to be real, right? No, this is this is much more nuanced, but you do get an insight into 
the differences there. And, and for me, that's that the cultural aspect of it is also very interesting. So if that's something that a listener out there is interested in, you know, do look that up. And I think uh, initially you'll get hooked on the show. Now, at first, I loved Aloha State. And Kevin was very much saying that uh, Aloha State's actually kind of dull compared to the two seasons that were in Japan. Fight, and fight, then when fight. I went, <laughs> I went back and I watched the earlier seasons. And by the end, I kind of had to agree with him um, that as much as I love Hawaii, the relationships and the things that happen, uh, especially in the second series, I think, um, were very, very interesting um, and made it a little bit more like, oh, we got to watch the next episode. We got to watch the next episode. Uh, my wife and I were sitting there marathoning them. Um, but it is something that, you know, we look forward to seeing. So we're happy when it comes back. Very cool. Uh, that's, uh, among other things, what you can hear on East Screen or West Screen. They don't do a episode uh, breakdown, so listen, it's like a recap, but uh, rather it's a discussion point amidst, uh, amidst the chat. And then you got your your uh, researched uh, news and uh, nuanced and informative reviews. So go check it out. Where's the website again? Uh, that can be found at concast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. And as for the rest of our contact information, this is Podcast on Fire, the flagship show of the Podcast on Fire network. We are located on podcastonfire.com along with all our other shows that covers, among other things, Japanese and Korean cinema. We have shows on sleazy movies, we do bonus episodes and uh, what have you. We have a run of uh, ninja-related shows, a complete run that is now uh, concluded for the time being anyway, called the Golden Ninja Podcast, if you ever wanted to find out. What was the deal with those Godfrey Ho and Richard Harrison movies? Well, we try and break it down for you in a fun and informative way. And that's the motto for the rest of the shows, including uh, this one. So check us out on podcastonfire.com. Follow the links to the social media. We have the Facebook button, Twitter button, iTunes and Stitcher radio button. They're conveniently placed for you at the top of the page. And I write about a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese genre movies over on my site. So goodreviews.com. I was uh, trying to catch uh, Paul off guard. Like, uh, so good. Where does it come from? Which uh, new millennium Hong Kong movie does it come from? That quote, that English quote. Oh, is this a test? Yes, yes. (laughs) That would be uh, La Brazier, I believe. Mm-hmm. My very, uh, I think, like a first Louis Coo movie, I think. Because I'd been out of the loop for a while, then I started picking up DVDs. And then I saw um, saw what uh, this impossibly handsome man was about. Him and Lao Ching Wan making bras in an office full of women. Sounds incredibly uh, sort of controversial, but it's a nice little comedy. And uh, that's where we got so good from. So I, I stuck with that uh, silly name for my site. I have a little video hub over at sleazykvideo.com and my tweets are available at so good reviews. So let's take a musical break and play what uh, might be considered uh, an icon- iconic musical theme from the series Young and Dangerous. I have a feeling it runs through all of them. Do you know offhand if that's the gang all singing that theme song or is it Eakin surrounded by nameless, uh, nameless backup singers and stuff? There's two songs. Um, there's Eakin sings a song, but then the group, uh, what is it, uh, Wind, Fire, Sea, which is Jordan Chan, um, Michael Tse, and um, John Chu, the other Ch- actor. Jason, apparently. Jason Chu, yeah. Uh, it's the three of them. They have a, a mini band, and they sing one of the theme songs as well. Because it sounds like it's four or five guys singing all at the same time, like it's a group. It may be wind, uh, wind, fire, sea. 
right doing on. that one. Yeah, because it sounds like that's going to run through the movies because that's going to be recognizable. That's uh, what you're going to market stuff on, and that's what you're going to release singles on and albums on and do live shows uh, featuring that one as the closing number and things like that. So, uh, but uh, anyway, we'll we'll get into it and see uh, what the first Young and Dangerous holds in terms of uh, content and our opinions of it. So uh, check us uh, check that out after the musical break. And welcome back in our first review of this episode is of Young and Dangerous from 1996, the very first one. And plot from the Love HK film review of the film goes as follows. Young triad guys Chan Ho Nam, played by Yikin Chang, Chicken, played by Jordan Chan and their buddies, played by Jerry Lam, Makitse and Jason Chu, work for their fatherly brother B, played by Frankie M, of the Hong Hing group. Eventually, they move up the ladder when they impress their benevolent boss, Mr. Chang, played by Simon Yam. Things go bad, though, when the scummy, ugly Quan, played by Francis M, runs Chang out of the top seat. When our heroes get on Quan's bad side, he does his best to screw them big time, leading to all sorts of triad angst. And ultimately, the buddies' friendship is tested by their individual hardships. Nam and Chicken, Ikin Chang and Jordan Chan, have a falling out which threatens to destroy the solidarity of the kids. There's a slightly ironic plot from Kozo, but nonetheless an excellent plot. As for short opinions, then I'll, I'll go first here. Um, I, I kind of have more of an interest knowing that this took off commercially and into various interesting directions, which mostly involves the dramatic and the quirky spin-offs. Uh, uh, but in terms of this movie by Andrew Lau, it, it, it's just a fairly ordinary triad pictures. There's nothing special going on here. Uh, it has a bland lead in the form of Ikin Cheng at this point in his career. I don't think he could bring any charisma as such. He's very young. The the frame is very loose stylistically, and but it, you know a lot of handheld. But that doesn't translate into this gritty street vibe. And uh, yeah, yes, they are trying to make it sexy, and therefore this appears glamorous. This tried lifestyle. It, in terms of movie impact, it's timid and ordinary, and Andrew Lau does very little to spice up matters. But thank God we have Francis here because he sinks his teeth into a bad guy role that's very funny and he's detestable as he should be and it shows that one adult was having fun here the kids are too inexperienced to get all of this done so thank God for the adults in the movie so uh, don't particularly like it but it's you can watch it but uh, uh, impact just uh, flat so that's my short opinion for now. Uh, what do you think of that young and dangerous one, Paul? Well, I, as I was mentioning to you before we started recording, um, if anybody were to ask me which of the young and dangerous films to watch, for me, I'd say watch this one. And you've seen pretty much all of them with the exception of the spinoffs, which in some cases are actually better than the main series itself. Uh, the prequel, though, is that worth uh, venturing into or only if you have an invested interest in uh, Chan Ho Nam and Chicken and all, all of those guys? I mean, if you are a completionist, um, sure, go for it. But it's a different cast for the most part. And they, I mean, at the start of this movie, 
they pretty much give you the five minute version of the prequel. So yeah. <laughs> why do you need the prequel? Yeah, yeah, in the sepia tone and stuff. Yes, I mean, it's it's one of those things that's very expansive. It's probably one of the largest bodies that you know has this many sequels and spinoff films to it for Hong Kong cinema. So, I mean, from that fact alone, if you are big into the triad genre and, you know, you like the idea of having, you know, this ongoing thing to watch, um, then sure, you know, uh, you you can go for it. But you're going to see a lot of the same themes repeated uh, at a certain point where the series really falls off for me is that a certain supporting character gets killed later on who was, you know, a character that I enjoyed seeing on the screen you know, by then it was just like, okay, we're, we're uh, manufacturing money by, by putting these out. So yeah, it sure felt like it uh, after a while when they realized that uh, this was like printing money, why don't we just get everybody in and make, make, make. And yeah, that's not always, um, you know, the springboard for creativity, which is certainly what the spinoffs um, was in my eyes. Um, just a brief mention, uh, this was based on a, uh, would you say it's a, uh, graphical novel is that the term for it uh, no uh, straight straight up comic book okay good I, i'm asking because uh, i i i simply don't know these terms uh, it was called um teddy boy originally created by Karl mann know nothing of it i just watched some uh, images online uh, the official site is uh, just in chinese so i couldn't pick up any background on it but did, did you ever pick up any background on it had any interest picking up uh, and uh, reading uh, reading after seeing the movie not not so much for this genre. And actually one of the things that's they, they do here and they do elsewhere in, in movies that come from comic books here is they actually give you a couple transitional panels from, I'll say like a, they, they'll suddenly do a freeze frame and they'll transition that over to a comic frame of, of that same image. And, you know, I tend to like that effect. And if we talk about the lead here, um, Ekin, you know, he he's somebody who's matured as an actor and, and gone into roles that we enjoy seeing him in. A lot of people like him here as the Honam character. A lot of people don't. He's very divisive, I think. He comes across as flat for the most part because he's a pretty flat character, but he looks the part. Because when they do those few transitions, I mean, if you're going to pick an actor who looks like the comic or the, or the you know, the the manga character... And when I say it's a straight up comic, my re- recollection is that they were, you know, because they have like regular sort of comic book sized comic books that you can buy at the newspaper stands. And this would include things like, you know, Storm Rider series, Man Called Hero, you know, lots of different titles over the years. And, and this was one of them. There may be compilations as like manga style compilations or graphic novels um, over the years. And one of the sort of side movies that we can mention here is the feel 100% series Mm -hmm. which came out later in this same year and part of me thinks that Ikin may have been cast in that for a similar reason because more so he looks the part especially when he's this young of a sort of leading man kind of manga slash comic book character especially in the art style that these characters were drawn which isn't really it's not Japanese manga anime style. It has a unique kind of style all to its own. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of this stuff never made it over to English adaptation. There were a couple releases, I want to say, of um, 
like the man called hero series called the blood sword and blood sword dynasty which are long-running series they got a very limited release through i think jade man comics back in the day but i never saw one for the teddy boys series um and there are lots of series that just never they they never get translated over because i guess the demand isn't there you talk about again the point here with Eakin is he's a flat character he's very flat in feel 100%. I've actually picked up a couple of those over the years and thumbed through them. I think I still have a couple in my collection. Um, in the Chinese, they're pretty easy to follow even if you don't read Chinese to tell what's going on. But it's just the idea that he looks the part, but he doesn't really come across as very charismatic in terms of his acting in either of the roles, I think. Yeah, I would I would agree with that 100%. But <laughs> you know, you know, there's nothing else to say because you're absolutely spot on and correct. And you know, you don't have necessarily a director like Andrew Lau to elevate material from the page because when Andrew Lau is good, there's material already. Then he can replicate that. But the Andrew Lau movies I dislike. It's sort of it feels flat from from the get go. And being merely a fair fan of the director. And uh, I'm I'm happy when he did a, a movie or two that was uh, way better. You know, Infernal Affairs is a good movie, but it's a co-directed venture with a good script. So there's uh, a collaboration thing going on there. And I'm very happy that Ikin got material presented before him and he got to respond and sort of lose the sexy image. And I, I'm saying sexy more in a commercial way. I'm sure it was a sex symbol, but it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, not literal like that. But I'm, but, but I'm so glad he got to shed that as he grew older and start to challenge himself. I mean, heck, even in the horror movie he did, rule number one, he was quite distinctively uh, bigger. He ate a couple of cheeseburgers for a few weeks uh, each night and uh, then looked apart very well. And uh, it's a natural and also sometimes a funny actor. But here it, it's uh, it's cause for image, I think. And I, I think you can apply that to some of the other characters. You, you got to match what's on the page, of course. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what the sort of tone is in Teddy Boy in terms of the following, but um, I, I mentioned the whole glamorizing the tri lifestyle, making it look like something cool to go into because you, if you're friends, you can hang out and you can beat up people with lawn chairs every now and again. But when all is said and done, I mean, do, do, do you think glamorizing the lifestyle was an easy issue in the movie? Do they make it too appealing? From what I remember reading at the time, that yeah, it was an issue that caused a little bit of moral panic <laughs> by the, the the leaders of Hong Kong society back in this period. Um, I think if you look to, for example, Paul Fonaroff's review of this in his book, he was very down on this film. He actually does a dual review, I think, and he contrasts this with um, the Andy Lau movie, What a Wonderful World, which came out around the same time. Why those two? Because I, it's, 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 because it, well, one is a terminal disease drama and that is this. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like you know it's a, it's a weird as he tries to bridge the connection maybe he just had to put in two reviews for that week it's uh you know he's really down and negative on this film and he highlights one of the things being the fact that you know this is glamorizing the triad society and it's you know for 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 me for that aspect it's an interesting little sort of cultural footnote because the films that did that before we go back to your your Chow Yun Fat movies right. Uh, a Better Tomorrow, The Killer, that kind of stuff, the decade before, you know, the, the late 80s gangster films. And they had a very different way of sort of glamorizing it, the whole sort of John Woo, gun, gun fu, heroic bloodshed kind of angle. 
And this discards that, but it brings a new sense of cool to it that was very appealing to the young people. And I cannot remember the source, but I do remember reading some articles on this that talked about some of the strategies they used. I'm not sure if it was with the first film, but I'm pretty sure with the subsequent films that they were doing midnight screenings of these films and really sort of getting the young people out late at night and, you know, full houses. And along with that, um, the comic book sales were booming too. And they were, you know, they'd put inside the comic books, they'd come wrapped in a kind of plastic baggie and they'd have little collector's items, like little stylized Not pen knives and, no. and things. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and things that, you know, would appeal to, you know, this young demographic that would see, you know, these hip actors in these roles and think, yeah, that's cool. That's a cool lifestyle. This is, you know, so it's a, it's sort of the whole commercialized package of that. But the amazing thing, and I think Fonaroff points this out as, as well, is that the comics, actually, a lot of them, and I don't know if this is true of the Teddy Boy comics themselves, but the ones that I would see that followed in this genre when I was in Hong Kong, um, many of them have a kind of a category three label on them, right? So they're actually depicting graphic violence and adult content in them, and they're not to be sold to minors. And so as I understand it, at least as he writes about it, and I'm assuming he's read some of these comics more in depth, that the Teddy Boy comics themselves are in that same vein. They're more violent, they're more adult and more graphic than these films are, which with their Eakin and Jordan and the pop guys, you know, they couldn't go that far because they don't really want to tarnish their pop image, um, even though they're taking on these roles. And so these films, um, unlike things like Chow Yun-Fat's triad movie, and some of the others that were done over the years only have a category 2B rating. Yeah, yeah, there's no signage, no foul language, presumably. It's certainly not a very violent movie either, so it's um, it's kept mild uh, versus that. Because uh, uh, even in the late 90s, I imagine if you did, if you did like known triad signs on screen, then boom, category 3 rating for you. Yeah. So, because I, I always heard that it was a sensitive issue. I mean, that, that that's the only reason Johnny Toe even got a like a category three rating for election or whatever. And then what he, did he do anyway? He, he did a big old poster with everybody doing triad signs, you know. So I don't care. It's a category three movie. I'm making I'm making a good movie too. Uh, which this isn't necessarily. It it all starts, in, you know, in sepia tone, and uh, you know, to to set up a little bit of backstory. He he, he almost tries. It feels like they're trying to make some, some kind of mild social statement because I'm, I'm I'm not sure this text is translated on the cinema print, but the UK set I got was translated where they talk of the fact that there were it was a major fire or several fires in 1956 that meant the construction of several apartment blocks in specific areas, tons of family uh, families moved in. This was the sort of breeding ground for crime, and this is where we meet our young heroes in this five-minute prequel in sepia tone and all of that. Um, and uh, even in teenage years, uh, there, you know, there's turf wars and all of that. Uh, I would I think I would have appreciated more if Andrew Lau and writer Manfred Wong were, were making, you know, a little bit more of an effective rise and fall type of story that, you, that these kids start out innocently. You know, this is our football field. You can't be here. And you get a little smack on, on the face. Uh, and then in adult years... I would have appreciated if, if the feeling was more impactful 
that we're now into a violent deadly game but they they rather treat this uh, in a pop star kind of way that uh, yes there's death and violence but um, in the end you get the entire causeway bay yay and and then the song comes on at the end and i i, don't, I i'm not this guy who is here to you know I'm not the sort of moral uh, moral police force of the network, but I thought it's slightly irresponsible, I think. But I, I think I could have shed that more easily if, if it was like this shamelessly impactful movie in terms of violence and street grit. But it really is too light for that. Uh, the the funny thing is in the CPR tone that they don't have a young Francis though. He plays his own young version and there and here you get francis who at this time is just on a roll in terms of creating these wild and quirky characters and uh, I, I don't know whose idea it was to have uh, well presumably from teddy boy uh, the, this originates from teddy boy but uh, francis's raspy voice as ugly kwan and it's just pure tropes uh, that he's uh, ticking off as an actor uh, you know, he's ruthless, he's uh, violent, he hits men, he hits women, he's got his raspy voice, and he's ugly. He's ugly Kwan. Already in the in the opening, I'm, I'm having a good time watching Francis, because uh, he's an uh, adult actor, and who knows a thing or two how to chew. And, uh, you know, even in the scene uh, later in the movie where one of his men has died, and they're in uh, the morgue, presumably, for identification, and he's mad. And first he hits his woman, then one minute later, he asks for oral sex right there on the spot. And that's the kind of wild and big character that he can chew into so well. And it really com- it makes the movie come to life really well when he is involved. But the rest of it is just sort of, well, some characters and some tropes and stuff like that. They're, oh, the adults come comes in again. Well, Simon Yam is here. Let's look at this with more interest. And then the kids take over again and, and seeing these kids... Get get into the groove of trying to rise in the tried ranks. It's not, it's not a compelling angle to see the rise. Paul, uh, is my point. Uh, it's because they, the material isn't there, and these young actors, except maybe Jordan Chan, I think he's got good energy about him. But otherwise, these young actors, they're, they're not um, appealing in that stage, character stage that they're in. It's just not very interesting to see these guys. And and to be honest, I didn't particularly buy there friendship and the, this, this bond it was just sort of there because the script said so I, did, I, did, I didn't feel any you know the heroic bloodshed brotherhood romanticized tr- brotherhood that John Woo was so good at this is not here it's just sort of yeah have conflict and be friends by the end and that'll be good yay and I think all of that is flat but Francis makes it come alive whenever he's on screen in my opinion any thoughts on Francis or Orvi or the, or the uh, group as we see them uh, develop from um, from kids to uh, slowly approaching the deadly game of being in the triad society. Yeah, well, you do mention, uh, the, as we talked about, sort of the five-minute prequel setup where, you know, Francis is there. And the great thing about this, and as, I'm, as I was rewatching, my wife was kind of walking into and out of the room, and she was like, oh, my God, they're all so young. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. Because you do have a bunch of faces here. Um, not just Francis, but Eakin and, uh, of course, Jordan, but Simon Yam just looking like he's fresh off the factory line. And Simon Yam still looks great today, but, I mean, it's like super smooth, mm-hmm. Simon Yam. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's it, you know, this is definitely a film that takes you back to, to the younger era of these actors. But in that early scene, you also get Frankie Mm, mm, Chung mm Chi Hong, excuse me, who, you know, is a staple of so many 
gangster movies and tried films. And for me, he has a really great role here as kind of the mentor for the, you know, this, this offshoot of the hung King boys. I, I liked rewatching the movie for him more so than anything else, but they put him in a wig and they kind of tried to de-age him in that <laughs> early sequence. And you can, you know, it just, just doesn't quite fit. And the amazing thing too, is he's actually in the prequel. So, you know, if you want to continue on, you know, with, with following, you know, him in this role, um, that's that's one reason to go back and, and sort of watch Young and Dangerous. The it, it really sounds like that's where you sort of sat more comfortably watching these solid supporting and character actors, yeah, even within tropes galore, like we do, yeah. like we get here. And I kind of got that feeling too. Simon Yam, one, he's dubbed by someone else. What the f was that about? <laughs> uh, because he was never too busy to dub, but maybe he was simply too busy that ten minutes. Uh, but um, otherwise, he was just, uh, you know, Lee UK. I'm not a particular big fan of his, but uh, hey, I remember that guy. It's a trade movie now. Where is Chan Wai Man? Not in this movie anyway. And <laughs> that's the only guy they didn't get. But it, it's all Shing, good. When... Shing Foyan's here. Yeah, I mean, it's beaten by lawn by a lawn chair, which is very humiliating. Yeah. But but uh, but 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 the central thing is, I mean, they might develop it through two, three, four, five, six, or however many official ones. Uh, uh, they got. They might develop it a bit more, but as they also grow three, four years older. But you know, I wasn't motivated to move forward because this—it's not interesting to watching these kids go on this journey. It, it would have been interesting if we, again, I'm hopping on about it, felt more the consequences of this world. But it's a—it's uh, really all um, surface stuff, man. Even even it, though violent things happen, and one of the guys in the group, uh, he he does die. Um, maybe the actor comes back in a different role. That's another staple of this series. Like you die in one movie, you're back in another, you know, as another character. But to to me, you know, so did did you see any potential in terms of well, maybe in the other movies, the, this journey towards adulthood and power and perhaps more character conflict? Like, is there any seed of interest here planted in terms of the Hong Hing boys? I mean, for me, not so much. Um, I just remember original and i do need to sit down and rewatch these um maybe i'll find a different level of appreciation uh i just remember going through the later films and thinking it becomes a, a lot of repetition in terms of some of the plot devices they use again they kill off other characters later on and there was one death in particular that kind of angered me did that character did that actor or actress come back in a way, or, 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 or he or she was kept out of the series after after that. Happened. I think she was. I, I think she was out of the series at I that know. point. Um, but it's you know again, I do need to revisit it. And, and again, later watching the spinoff films like Portland Street and Legendary Taifei, and just having a better impression of those in my mind as being more interesting and and you know the, the way because why, you know, why here, is that? You think is there less what was there less pressure on those makers to adhere to? Teddy boy, and they could just sit down and kind of think of new ways to approach the triad story and the triad, uh, triad tropes. Maybe, and, and maybe in part it's because once you've established the relationship of these characters, you know, uh, Chan Honam as the perfect pretty boy leader of the group, and Chicken is sort of the wild womanizer, and Jerry Lamb is kind of there as, you know, comic relief when he needs to be, and some emotional outbursts when he needs to. Uh, who was Michael's Michael says as a uh, you know, and Michael say is worth a mention too, because I mean, I, I think at this point, you know, Eakin was probably 
the bigger name of the group and the rest of the guys, you know, but they're all sort of on this platform. And this is a thing that helps push their careers forward. And unfortunately, like Michael say, um, didn't really get as quite as much out of this as Eakin and Jordan did. Jerry Lamb was always kind of stuck in that supporting role. And he would go on, of course, to do TVB hosting and, you know, make a great career for himself. You get uh, Michael Tse, who, you know, had to gravitate back and forth between TV and uh, small film roles over the years. And then he got struck it big with his TV role of Laughing Go um, in the Turning Point series. It wasn't Turning Point. Um, well, well, the movie, movie was uh, Turning Point, yeah. Movie spinoffs Turning Point. And so, you know, he had a, a kind of resurgence later on. And so, you know, that's great. Uh, Jason Chu, unfortunately, you know, again, he did some small roles, but he never really got that far out as, as you know, some of the other guys did. Um, but, you know, if you talk about Eakin as the leading man here, it's just, for me, he's flat. I mean, again, if I'm not a Hong Kong youth coming out of, you know, estate buildings during this era, it's probably, again, speaking to kids and they're looking up to him and and his look and that kind of time for the era as great right but for me it's just as a character he was kind of dull he was kind of boring not that interesting and so i think that when you see characters like anthony wong as tai fei later on or sandra and she's a uh, sister 13 yeah um and then they get their own movies and you get more into their story and who they are that was f- much more interesting material for me um as as a viewer now i will say this about Eakin. If you want to see Eakin in a triad role that shows him more interesting and more mature and not related to this series at all, but it's kind of, you know, a neat progression of him as sort of a triad gangster. Um, the movie Goodbye, Mr. Cool is, is a nice progression of him at having matured out of this kind of Teddy Boy image into a role where he's actually able to act a little bit. But I'm thinking here, I mean, if you look at just the first movie, uh, they, they do present a little, little bit of, uh, you know, in the writing and via Frankie, Frankie mm, they, they at least talk about the peaks and valleys of the trial life. And that that's sort of good to establish. It, it is basic. But the problem here for Andrew Lau, the director, it, it, he isn't apt at, or maybe he's not attempting that much to amp that theme where we have peaks and valleys that are black and white and therefore... You know, when the going good is then it's good, it's fun to watch, and when it's bad, it's heart wrenching to watch. He he doesn't have those chops, and that needs to be there. That is structurally that that felt na- nature needs to be there. I don't want it to be hugely melodramatic because they do that. They have crying scenes. Oh, we lost our body, and it's just flat as well. But so if there's no promise here, then I I have no interest to watch all up till Born to Be King or whatever which I believe is the sixth one or the last one. But by that point, because the characters have presumably risen a little bit in the trial ranks, the actors are a little bit older, is there any interest and more maturity by that point? Or what do you remember, if you remember anything, from the latter story beats and and with the same actors at that point? I just remember some redundancy the, 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 as the guys rise. There's fallouts again and then reunifications again. Um, I think they throw in a MacGuffin at one point, you know, where it's like, oh, we think uh, 
we've gotten them to split up, but actually, you know, they've tricked us and, you know, they're back together and kind of thing. And then they bring Taiwan into the mix later on with Hong Kong gangsters and Taiwan gangsters and politics there involved. And I mean, it's fine, but it's not, it's just for me, it wasn't quite as interesting as, as some of the spinoff stuff. The, the thing too, I mean, with Francis mm, and with this film, you know, and he's great and he does this over the top stuff and we've seen him expand on this kind of crazy eyes over the top role and other things, you know, maybe at the time I didn't think too much about it because it was all sort of fresh and new, but watching it this time, I'm like, why would anybody follow this guy? <laughs> you know, this is, this is one of those crazy kind of bond villain things where you think he must pay his followers super, super well. Because who would follow him? Because at any moment he's like a, he, you know, it's like he's going to snap and, and kill you. He, you say the wrong thing, boom, he hits his girlfriend. You say the wrong thing, boom, he beats up his own follower. So why would, any, you know, the, there's this whole thing, election style thing where they're trying to, you know, vote out Simon Yam. And then all the buddies are saying, oh, you know, Ugly Kwan, he's always there when we need him. And, you know, he's so, he, you know, he helps us make money. He does all this great stuff for us. But we never see that on screen. We only see the crazy stuff. So it's like I, you know, I get that they're trying to establish him as the villain, but it would have been nice if they could have gone and given him some more depth too, you know, rather than just making him this guy who's so easy to dislike. And yet, because he brings enough energy, hearing you recap that just makes me smile because I'm just thinking Francis owning a room despite that flaw in the characters you yeah. just described. It's just, maybe I was looking for any fun. Give me any fun. But he's, he's you know, he's, he genuinely is fun, even though there are beats in the character that you would like to have expanded on. Now, his spin-off movie, Once Upon a Time in Tribe Society, has nothing to do with Young and Dangerous. It's Ugly Kwan, it's him, but and you also see Spencer Lamb in this priest role. But it, it simply isn't Young and Dangerous. It simply is just another character called Ugly Kwan. And it is Ugly Kwan, but it isn't Ugly Kwan. And to boot, that movie has a sliding doors, run, Lola, run type of uh, setup as well. Because it, uh, it uh, presents uh, different versions of events. And it's hysterical. Because, again, the movies outside of Young and Dangerous, the, some of the ones we mentioned, I don't know if the filmmakers were aware of this that they wanted to provide counter-programming to Young and Dangerous. But it sure comes off that way. Because Once Upon a Time in Tribe Society seems to be a satirical take on the life of a tribe. Why uh, um, uh, Johnny Toe produced, Too Many Ways to Be Number One, seems to be a satirical take on the tribe lifestyle because uh, these are fools. you know. And, and that also, by the way, has the same sort of, uh, the, well, it could have happened this way. Too, uh, too many ways to be number one. It has, uh, you know, they go to Taiwan, that happened, and then in the second half of the movie they go somewhere else, and the, the events play out in a different way. I don't know about you, Paul, but to me it felt like the, the filmmakers, maybe without meaning it, became filmmakers uh, making counter-programming to the sexy tribe movie. Now we're, we're going to make them uh, look a bit foolish, uh, but, but not parody, but just a little bit more foolish, because the tribe lifestyle you know, image-wise, can be foolish-looking and feeling and sounding. Can you can you refresh my memory? Is that the one that has the the triad Olympics, or is that Days of Being Dumb? Uh, no, that is Boys Are Easy, my friend. Boys Are Easy, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an earlier film, and it's a genius sort of way to play with the triad tropes as well. What if one of Wong Jing's few genius ideas, he's had many great ideas, but that's a genius idea. 
you know, we have a tried society. In a society, we have Olympics, right? We can have tried Olympics, run after each other with machetes, I assume, or something. I yeah, I mean, if you're looking, if you're looking at to laugh at this genre, I think those are probably three movies that will really get your mind going, right? Um, as as kind of a mini marathon, so. You know, if we just round off the sort of character portrayal a little bit, at least they're not confident all the effing time. Jordan Chan's character, who in the beginning of the movie seems to have a fresh coat of paint in his hair in two scenes. Because his hair looks thick, right? It looks like they used actual paint to put in that hair. But anyway, my point is, it nice to, it's nice to see these characters taken down a little bit. They can shiver at the thought of meeting uh, elders and people higher up in the triads, you know, uh, through Johnny Wang's cameo when talking to jordan chan he has to be respectful and he he's not all talk into and can be confident and uh, threatening like a francis can so so yes you you know they're still kids some are destined for transition and some will lead some will uh, follow the leader not all are destined for the seat you know and that's a you know it's a fine beat for the story if you look at the structure but the frame by andrew Lau, uh, i presume he was his own cinematographer it orally and visually it gives up nothing sort of inspiring hard exciting and and then when action starts paul oh my god that same blurry stutter like slow motion for for the triad brawls and i sh- i'm sure andrew Lau thought like we have a mess here of violence. Let's shoot it in a way where you can't pick up each and every facet of it. But it just fails completely because you can't pick up on any atmosphere and danger because you can't see anything in the blur. So that that's how it sort of backfires on him because we got tragedy, loss of brothers in the blur. But if we can't sort of appreciate that, then how the hell are we going to supposed to care for this um, bloodshed you know we, if we can't see or feel then what's the point really so i think that that fails hard the action depiction to be honest and i don't remember what two and three did in terms of action if there were better stuff there but uh, here it's just painful to watch this stuff uh, in the blurry slow-mo thing I, I think there's nothing really to write home about in terms of the the action sequences that go on here you know it's a lot it's a it's a lot of chopping on the street and some fighting and a little bit of gunplay at the end, but not much. Yeah, it's only uh, so essentially the shot with Jordan Chan and the and the um, shotgun. Yeah, that, that was cool, but that that's half of a gunplay shot, right? <laughs> then, then then there's nothing else there. And uh, he's young; he 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 fit that image uh, still, you know, with a shotgun. I like that, but uh, you know, a little peak, a little frequency increase doesn't make for uh, for anything uh, memorable. So. But, but but I'll say this though, as a as a with a final sort of cheeky note, I guess it's the most formal Hong Kong movie ever because everybody is uh, Mister or Miss or Mrs. in the credits. Mister Jordan Chan, Mister Ethan yeah. Chang. They did do that in English, uh, which is a choice I've never seen uh, before. Which was like, oh, oh, oh that's rather pro- proper of them. That was rather nice of them. <laughs> you know, even the editor is Mister Mister Marco in this case, uh, probably Marco Mac. And if you, you do look through the tech credits, you will see um, some other people who kind of were midway or early on in their career here. Soi Chung, for example, uh, on a script supervision for this film. So The man who, uh, who saved the Monkey King franchise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, it, this film has tendrils in contemporary Hong Kong cinema, uh, to be sure. But the thing about the credits, too, I don't know if this was on your version, but I have the old 
um, gold box uh, Maya DVD. And the credits are sort of overrun with scenes from the film. They're just like replaying scenes from the film. And the scenes keep going even when the credits are done. It, it, you're talking about the ending credits? Yeah, yeah. It might have, I might have just tuned out after the final dialogue. You're now the chief of Cosway Bay. Yeah, and then fuck this movie. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> it, it went to a comic book panel by that point uh, and on my version, right? Uh, mm. So, And I, that can't have been from Teddy Boy, those panels, because they were so immaculate in terms of how they how he was uh, drawn versus staged. And some of the actors looked exactly like the comic book panel that they inserted in the movie. That can't have been from Teddy Boy, right? Uh, no, I think that those were, you know, they may, perhaps maybe commissioned the artist to come in and... Because uh, they, they do it in a couple places. There's a, there's like a still shot a landscape with some trees and stuff. And when they change the setting, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I don't think... It's a direct correlation from the comic book. Um, it's just hand drawn of that. And if <clears throat> memory serves too, I mean, Eakin is you know handsome for the air, but he doesn't look anything like the Jerry character as drawn in the Feel One Hundred Percent comics. So yeah, yeah, it was literally like a lookalike in, as depicted in the movie. So uh, because when I first saw it, okay, fine, nice, nicely copied Andrew Lau, and then after a while, now wait a minute. They're, they're doing it the wrong they're doing it the other way around which is fine it, it's a neat yeah. little transitional thing and uh, but it, it's definitely that style of you know I, I don't know if they got the artist himself to do it or mm. somebody who can really recreate it, but it's definitely that style so well I, i'm out of notes my friend and um that's uh we'll go into the availability but uh, where, uh what is uh, else what do you want to say if you haven't mentioned it already it's an okay film to start and if it really you know is your thing you can continue on uh, with the rest of them. Otherwise, I'd say maybe watch the second one because I think the second one is where we get the introduction of Sister 13 and Tai Fei. Definitely Tai Fei. I reread my review and I, I quoted Anthony Wong as being hilarious as Tai Fei, a really foul character too. Yeah, and so from there, I think it, you're clear to avoid the rest and go into the spinoffs. Yeah, I, I'd reckon if you want to see the spin-offs, then, then then go for the dramatic man because they did it really well. Portland Street Blues was, I I, I had not seen, I've, I've yet to see the actual, I think anyway, because if she's in two or three, I've seen Sandra as Sister Thirteen, but it certainly was just sound dramatic stuff, man. And you had with some Y and D cameos that yes, they shoehorned in, but it's okay because they, this is strong dramatic stuff and. Uh, then, then on the flip side, you have Once Upon a Time and Tried Society, the first one, which is Ugly Quan, but it isn't connecting at all to it. It's a div- sort of alternate uh, universe uh, kind of thing, you know, Earth 2, <laughs> if you will. And th- this is how <laughs> Ugly Quan does it in on Earth 2. And it's a hilarious movie. It's as cheap looking, uses the same stylistic traits, but it's just much more... Not much more because it is a satire ultimately and it's played more for laughs, but uh, it's just funny. And Francis Zoom is having a blast playing the different facets of uh, Ugly Kwan. I can hop on about it forever, but so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna stop very briefly. But they do the clever thing of uh, they depict him as ugly and more in that movie versus this one, and then they have a flashback to when he was the kind triad and the world corrupted him, and that's a little viewer trap. That I find irresistibly funny. Because they have a trick up their sleeve. In terms of that structure. That is hysterical. 
and uh, that 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 movie uh, is such a shame that it was hidden away from DVD and things like that uh, because uh, it's a uh, it's uh, it's a great counter program to Young and Dangerous. Uh, so, um, as for availability of uh, Young and Dangerous, it is a Mayer title that turned up early on DVD in that curious packaging because Paul said Gold Box. It sounds like wow, limited edition. No, that's the way DVDs looked for a while in Hong Kong. They came in this cardboard box where. The DVD was in a CD case. It's like a sleeve. It's got a sleeve, an outer sleeve, like, you know, some of the DVDs today have an outer sleeve um, that you then slide down. But then in the middle, it's like just a cardboard box with a CD sized crystal case kind of fitted neatly within. So and it always just it it always just made me feel like, you know, oh, because this it was like this transitionary era where DVDs were still very new, I guess. So it's like we got to make them bigger. We can't just release them in the same sized crystal case. We've got to make them bigger so people will think it justifies the higher price. And it kind of, kind of looks corny nowadays, but uh, it was on DVD anyway. I believe they reused the um, cinema print, correct? So maybe it was Laserdisc sourced, but uh, it had the old burned-in subtitles, your version. Right? Yes, yeah. yes indeed. Um, they didn't upgrade this to anamorphic widescreen as far as I know may are, so, and it also looks to be out of stock and out of print, and um, since no great print therefore exists, I, I'd recommend grabbing the UK DVD box set, which have the first three movies. It's not great DVD quality, but the set is still cheap, but all movies, if memory serves me right, have newly translated but permanent subtitles. So. Uh, you can get it for cheap on the Amazon Marketplace. Uh, the old Hong Kong DVD does seem to exist cheap on the US Amazon Marketplace, um, for instance. Um, but if you look it up on eBay, uh, there's some dodgy choices there. Because, um, w- well, one, the, most of the other parts are available and not Young and Dangerous 1. But eBay holds a, a collection of 12 DVDs plus a CD or two, including some of the spin-offs, and you can get that for cheap, but I doubt this is official because those movies had... Maya didn't have all the rights for them. Some were Universe, some were White Sides. I think it's a bootleg collection of 12 movies, uh, not including the Triad Society spin-offs. Uh, but, um, so if you want to get it, it's up to you, but uh, I'm, I'm calling it that. It's a bootleg and, um, and all of that, so yeah. Too good to be true, kind of box set. You know what I mean, Paul? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, indeed. You can get Young and Dangerous One and the Legendary Taipei in. Yeah. <laughs> so, but there it is. Uh, Young and Dangerous One put to bed. If, bed if we pursue any of the other parts, uh, we'll see. If you want uh, coverage of at least three of the movies, let us know. I'm happy to do the work. But uh, for now, I have no desire to go into Young and Dangerous Two. I want to rewatch Once Upon a Time and Try Society One again because that uh, makes me happy. More of a happy place than in the place where uh, Young and Dangerous One resides. So there it is. We're going to watch and review a sequel, however, this episode, and that is Fong Sayuk 2 from 1993. And we'll do that after a promo break, the direct sequel to the 1993 Korean-directed production starring Jet Li. So we'll be back to see how the sequel fares. All right, man, we really got to record a promo for this thing. Should we write a script for this? Ah, fuck it, man, we'll do it live. Hey, folks, this is El Goro. And this is the Cancer Man. And we are the hosts of Talk Without Rhythm. The only podcast that will not attract the worm. That really doesn't explain what we do. Well, we watch two movies a week, we review them, we bullshit, and sometimes we say something funny. Yeah, but most of the time we just piss people off. Well, the American film viewing public can't handle most of what we have to say. But if you think you can, you can find us on iTunes if you do a search for Talk Without Rhythm. You could also find us on our website, tworpodcast.blogspot.com, baby. Deuces.
there weren't many movies, at least not on the surface, that featured Fong Sayok, at least. I mean, The Kung Fu Kid, which I believe is a, oh, is a Chinkalok, possibly. Uh, but uh, re- regardless, uh, it seems like in movies, uh, yeah, uh, Chinkalok and Lam Ching, it seems in movies Fong Sayok. Um, wasn't represented widely but maybe on tv uh, subsequently i can imagine tv uh, had plenty of space to um, expand on fong sayok's adventures um, but uh, regardless this is the second uh, jet lee movie and uh, plot from the love hk film review of the film a quick follow-up to the impressive fong sayok features even more hijinks of the hong kong variety this time Fong, played by Jet Li again, ends up working for the Red Flower Society and also gets a new love interest, played by Amy Kwok, a.k.a. Mrs. Lao Ching Wan. Do you know if they're still married? They certainly were at the end of the 90s, though. I, I believe they are, yeah. Cool, cool. Uh, they acted together in that um, Ringo Lam movie, uh, Victim. Uh, I saw that recently, so that was the first time I realized that. Oh, oh yeah, that's cool. And they're good together. You know, because they're yeah. com- comfortable together. As you'd expect in a kung fu comedy, Fong also retains old wife Ting Ting, played by a professional scenery Michelle. Uh, well, I always pronounce it Race, but I think it's pronounced Hayes, her uh, Portuguese name. But uh, professional scenery is Koso's uh, comment, and not me. But uh, she's back for this movie, and all of that means comedic marital problems are plenty. Uh, meanwhile, Fong Sayok's mother, the fabulous Josephine Xiao, reunites with an old flame, who is played by director Corey Young. Plus, there's bad guy in fighting. So, Koso being very fair in terms of uh, this is no revolutionary story. The comedy, the bad guys, and fighting. Fong Sayok is back, Josephine is back. And is it any good or not? Well, Paul, let us hear your quick opinion of Fong Sayok 2. Yeah, it's uh, okay. There's a a bit of repetition, there's a bit of escalation, Um, there's a bit of head scratching. Refresh my memory, but. I don't think Fong's father died in the end of the last one, right? No, he saved him from being decapitated, but Paul Paul Chu is definitely not back, no. And I don't think they ever mention him. Well, where did he go? Well, he has an important matter to attend to for months. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. So they, they probably simply couldn't recall. Yeah, Paul. And, and in fact, both of the dads are kind of uh, missing here, right? Because um, the father of Michelle Rice's character is also not present. It's okay, I think so. There is that notion uh, when we're thinking of these two movies that I, I didn't mind the direct sequel, but I was pretty satisfied after one. Yes, it's sort of open-ended, but the current adventure is over. Now they're on to a different adventure. And you know, make that into a movie or do not make that into a movie. I'm, I'm pretty satisfied. But uh, technically and in parts visually, it's actually it's impressive. Uh, but the freshness of the tone is sort of gone and uh, repetition is definitely a key issue, Paul. I agree. On the plus side, it isn't too ambitious for its own good. So, you know, it's small stories of rivalry within political and violent movements, you know. Um, Fong Sayok adds to his morals and ethics, which is depicted well enough for the quick fix that this is. But don't skip it, but don't expect to be as dazzled as with the first one. Uh, the fresh uh, freshness is a little bit gone, but it's okay. Let's throw out a brief, brief recap if you just can off the top of your head of the of the first. Uh, do you remember we we reviewed it? Yes, but uh, do you remember if that is uh, still you know because it's a gently wuxia of the nineties comedy plus Josephine, lots of lying, and you know is it still um, a favorable movie when you think back on the first one? Yes. Well, good. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs>
you've even seen it in the cinema. So that begs the question: Did, did you um, locally back then, before you moved to Hong Kong, did you catch the second one? Did they uh, play that months after this one? Yes, they did. Um, and it was not really months. It was like because there was a bit of delay for the theaters that got them here. It wasn't. It wasn't like same week, same month release. We would get them a couple months later. But in some cases, they would try to, if there was a a newer sequel film, they would try to like hold off so that the two films would be maybe week to week. I don't remember if this was a week case of week to week, but I'm pretty sure it was only a couple weeks out um, when we saw the sequel. So, you know, it was it was a, a time when things like this weren't all that common. You know, you did have sequels that would come a couple years later. But to have sequels within the same year, that was something to kind of look forward to. I remember thinking at the time that, yeah, okay, you know, it was kind of more the same. It wasn't terribly disappointing. Um, This time, I think, watching through, I noticed a lot more of the redundancy and uh, found it a little bit less engaging. And it was a spring release in Hong Kong, I believe, and the, se- and the sequel was a summer release. So they didn't do a Young and Dangerous thing where, where they um, overlapped or anything. But they uh, clearly shot back to back as uh, Jet was in demand by this point. So you can't just uh, drop everything and expect Jet to turn up again. Um, uh, granted, he did produce it, so I'm sure he, he had a say in you know if he was gonna double build these uh, or not or do something else in between but um, certainly uh, there's a case for that uh, happening that they shot it all in one chunk uh, oh, oh by the way i didn't recap my brief views uh, views yes it is fun it's uh it's a nice counter to once upon a time in china because it's not a, it's not as heavy um heavy politically and dramatically uh, jet lee and josephine's uh, double act is superb because she is and then he follows very well uh, the waifu sequences are pretty technically impressive um cla- not a thorough classic but fun and way above what the genre produced in the 90s in the wake of once upon a time in china we we had some movies that clearly were quickly trying to um, do the same thing uh, the, uh, this one is above that but uh, as i said there, there is a recap of you know what tone we had in the first one uh, we see um uh, grainy black and white uh, flashbacks to uh, Josephine and Jet uh, bonding. Uh, we see the fun of the slapsticks, uh, the misadventures in hairstyles, uh, Jet Lee in drag, and then they have a sort of singing number together on different sides of the country. You know, so it's a little MV featuring Jet Lee and Josephine while the actors are riding on their fake uh, fake horses. So it it sets the stage sort of that. Um, yeah, you remember that movie, right? It was kind of fun, right? And Josephine was funny. That hairstyle was crazy. So Corey sets the tone a little bit then. And uh, I didn't look for Paul personally that the mood this one just because Fong Sayuk moves up and towards more of a political movement. I, I didn't necessarily look for a serious statement. Uh, I was perfectly fine with dipping a little bit into his personal morals and ethics, but still keeping it fairly fun and light you know what i mean like so do you think that was a good choice that Corey kept the kept the balance uh, you know uh, of featuring a little bit of everything intact yeah i mean it's okay it's it's in this kind of similar territory as um i want to say the the royal tramp movies where you you know you get into this notion of the secret society and you know returning uh, or what is it they, what is it they say um rebel against the Qing and return to Ming 
the overthrowing of the Qing dynasty to return to the previous Ming dynasty. The idea of belonging to those societies and Adam Cheng's character here is a leader, but a guy who has secret ties that are un- unveiled and everything. What I really think is underwhelming, though, is the villain, just not a very interesting villain or portrayal. It's 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 a, he's a very obvious villain and I mean he's not even that interesting or threatening um as a character and I you know again it's like how how does how does does anybody follow this guy he's a bit of a blowhard that that kind of thing and it's very obvious when the fortune teller comes around and says somebody close is going to betray you and somebody close is going to save you it you know I mean come on if Adam Chang is his character is really that dumb he can't see it then <laughs> You know, he doesn't deserve to be leading the Red Flower Society. It, it's one of the cases where I do agree very much, but it's because I, I felt like, at least I put my mindset into this, that, you know, don't expect too much. It's a little fix, right? That's going to be technically impressive here and there. So if they don't put forth their utmost, then I, I find that okay. He's got a very anime villain laugh, you know, like, and it's just like, <laughs> come on, guys. I mean, you could have made this the Josephine's show and it would have been that much better for sure <laughs> if you would have just uh you know shown her making soup and doing funny shtick and all of that and it, it it's a little kind of dark at the end when you know she gets a bit of bad treatment but for me i guess a lot of it because it's really just trying to escalate the action of the first film but it's doing a lot of the same motions so you have this idea that, okay, now because he's this young up-and-comer in the Red Flower Society, they want him to marry this Manchu princess who's played by um, Amy Kwok, a.k.a. Mrs. Lao Ching-wan. And as a result, she's like really into him, but of course he's got his first wife, Ting Ting, and she doesn't like the idea of him having a second wife, and so there's strife, and he wants to do it to fulfill his duty for you know, uh, king and country, as it were. He's got to marry her to get this box, and there's something in, you know, what's in the box? <laughs> there's the whole MacGuffin behind that. And so, you know, there's a, another kung fu competition to win her hand, and it's up on a big platform like the first one. And it's just like, really, you're just going through these same beats. And then the fight scene at the end, again, they've got, like, all these stools stacked up and it's knocking the stools down and trying to prevent somebody from being hung and, you know, uh, last minute saves and, and this kind of thing. And it's fine. You know, it's it's not that it's shoddily done. Feels just like in terms of the writing and what they wanted to do. It was like, well, we had this big hit. We need another big hit. Let's throw more of the same out there and try and do it a little bit bigger, bigger this time. But it's just not quite as well executed. And in terms of the story, it's just not quite as interesting, I think. I, I kind of agree. I mean, it's certainly not, not something you, you're bored with. And, and also, yeah, th- that kind of brings in a point, I guess, that the, the pitfall of shooting something back to back, trying to come up with enough ideas for two movies, which is something Corey and... Uh, as a director and and then the action team with him and Juntak, they, they do struggle a little bit uh, with. But um, technically, there's uh, sort of you, you can recap almost our review notes from part one in terms of the technical aspect to the wire-assisted um, action. Uh, it's thankfully not infused with 
a lot of the stuttery slow motion that opens the um, the first real uh, Dragon Dance attack uh, assassination on Adam Chang. It's it's used mostly in that case that stuttery slow mo where the Dragon Dancers find their target. They leap off the ground and try and find their target and uh, then there is that therefore in the story there is that switch from celebration to deadly and dark at the drop of a hat and that is what lures in this world but you know do not kid yourself that that is in any affecting it's, it's a story beat that you recognize but technically i do really appreciate some of the stuff they do in the action there's some longer shots of flying literally therefore longer wire assisted shots as executed which is done very smoothly and clear and uh, yes Corey dumps this on us fairly early on so to remind us that we did this kind of action in the first movie so please stay with us (laughs) but i i i never thought the action was uh, anxious as such anxious to get done just to make sure the audience uh, stays or anything but uh the nifty thing that I always bring up in terms of the YFU movies is that sometimes, and especially in the Jet movies, we get some grounded fight stuff as well. And uh, I do find that quite uh, irresistible, especially when Jet Li has that lit staff that he uses to uh, dispose, us, uh, dispose of uh, the dragon uh, dancers and uh, set to either lower Low's heroic score or, or a song that you mentioned in our uh, offer chat uh, i don't know if that was the song you uh, was referencing that they used in fong sayuk 2 rather than the fong sayuk score yeah the the start of this movie there's um and i think in the end credits there's a a famous basically it's kind of like a chinese nursery rhyme and uh, the translation is roughly like only mother is best in the world or something um if you look up chinese song about mother you'll find lots of variations of this and you've probably heard it before and it's the song they use here in the beginning sort of montage and i think in the end credits too and it's kind of a i mean yeah i get it you know josephine's the mom and she mothers sayok and we, we get that in the relationship but it's kind of weird it's like if you put a nursery rhyme at the start of a jean-claude van damme movie you know like uh um, you know, uh, nowadays, maybe he will, <laughs> yeah, maybe, he would be up maybe. for that. Yeah, maybe. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of an odd choice, maybe again, a rushed choice because again, with only a few months between production and they didn't want to go out all out with a full musical score or something like that. Who knows? It still fits within the context of the movie. It's just kind of an odd, an, an, an odd choice for me, uh, um, for the film. Yeah, but but uh, what I also wanted to mention about the, the action, it still gets... I For, for these movies, I kind of try and slow down and study what they're doing through each shot and subsequently each edit because it, it's mightily creative what they do here and they need to do it in very short bursts. Each event during an action scene, each conceptualized cut needs to be done... Uh, you know it's a second long thing and that's all they can do technically and that's all they need to do technically before they move on whether it's a you know someone moving towards adam chang whether it's a wire spin whether it's a sword going through the frame and the reason i'm mentioning all of this and saying that they're small cuts is that when all is said and done when they put it together 
it is frantic and dissing to a degree, yes. But to me, Paula, they, they still get the sort of flow and coherency quite correct here. These action scenes, you, you can appreciate where we are and where they start and where we're going. And uh, so, so that, that coherency in these sometimes wild concepts being often wire assisted and up in the air and uh, that's they're, they're pretty tight in execution i think yeah and, and that runs through the movie i mean i i certainly enjoy the ending with the stacked stools and also slow try to slow down where do you start and how many shots do you need to do to get this 10 minutes done and for how long do you spend uh, on that set to get all this done because Hong Kong film, I guess I, I don't think do shot lists either. They they get there on the day, they have what uh, what is built for them, and then start to create a little bit on the spot. They might have an idea in their head, but I I, I can't imagine Corey Yun and Yun Tak coming in with stacks of uh, storyboards of action like this is what we're gonna do like <laughs> like the Scott brothers or something. They they always drew their storyboards and stuff. I, I repeat my views from one while I'm talking of this, but I, I still find that um, technical aspect of, in particular this one, uh, quite impressive. The way the, the thing they put on screen through doing so little at one time, and yet it all flows. So I, I think that's still fairly impressive. Any thoughts on that, though, um, in terms of action, if you look at almost, <laughs> like if you look at both movies uh, at the same time, is it still impressive in 2018 what they come up with here? I mean, it is, I think, in terms of things that I reflect back on, though, the first film is a bit more memorable. I mean, I remember we talked about some of the very creative ways they did shots, you know, in the sequences, like people running on top of some of the other uh, disciples in some sequences and how they used camera angles to to make it work. But it still looked very vibrant and, and energetic. And, and they do that here, but... It's just not quite, I mean, it just feels like in some ways, well, this is what we did in the first film and it worked well and we learned it. Now we're going to do the same thing because maybe we learned from our mistakes a little bit and so we can try it another way that's maybe more efficient or, you know, work with it a little bit more. But it doesn't have for me the same level of impact or it's just not quite as impressive for me as the first film was. It's more of the same, and it's not bad by any means. I mean, for sure, there are plenty of wirefu films out there from this era that lack the kind of dynamic energy that's put into this film. And I really think that's coming directly from uh, Corey Yoon, right? And so that can that carries forth, but it's for me, it's just not quite as memorable or impactful as what they do in the first film which really kind of just came from out of nowhere Mm -hmm. and you you can contrast that with how once upon a time in china one and two for instance worked. they weren't overlapping productions and choi hak and crew and his action guys they they sat down to provide something different for that new story and uh, so, so therefore a year later which i i believe it was i i i think they came out with the movie a year later in that case, it didn't feel like uh, Wong Fei Hong 1.5 or anything, but it was literally the sequel is here and it's bigger. It's actually better, too, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, uh, what about Josephine, though? She isn't sort of reinventing her comedic uh, shtick here, but uh, she's Josephine after all. So, what are your thoughts on when we get uh, home life with uh, Josephine after a bit of uh, Jet Li in the beginning of the movie? 
yeah, I mean, it, it, she's probably the best thing of the film, um, as with the first film. Um, she carries a lot of the, the comedic value here, which I would have liked more of overall. There's a sequence where, and for some reason, they went with a Japanese aesthetic for some of the things. Um, there's a, a fight sequence about midway that happens on a river with, I guess, a bunch of Japanese samurai envoys. Um, at least they're all carrying sort of Japanese-style katanas. And then later, in sort of a final kind of gauntlet sequence, Jet Li blindfolds himself, and he's got, like, I don't know, a, a dozen or so uh, katanas. that he, And he looks really cool. It's a very cool, striking image. But it's like they decided to suddenly go with this um, Japanese sword aesthetic as kind of a weapon of choice in the film. And Josephine actually shows up as a kind of uh, Miyamoto Masashi uh, parody, and yeah. it's just a very a very fun sequence. And I and I guess she's kind of uh, who's the actor uh, Seven Samurai and uh, well, well, it's Toshiro Mifune. But uh, yes. they, they, yeah. they, I was going to ask you because there's been plenty of movies depicting that character. So who so were you thinking of that series with Toshiro Mifune playing uh, Mushashi yes. Miyamoto? Yeah, character? very much because of the way she's like you know her body movements, and I, I think that's kind of a direct reference there. Um, but she's funny, you know, in that, and she just lights up the screen when she comes on in pretty much any scene she's in. So yeah, it was pretty, pretty funny, and not too many. Um, it, it, like it doesn't feel terribly local. What she's doing. The, the The initial scene has one aspect that feels like I don't think the English subtitles are cut out for this. Where they're doing poetry uh, as a poetry off, and I, I've, I'm thinking to myself, that must play. <laughs> like gangbusters yeah. in Cantonese because I'm not getting any of this. But it's, jo- it's Josephine. She has energy and uh, it's all fine. Like, like there's various uh, kung fu challengers, I believe, that comes to the house. And either they want her or they want Fong Sayok, but he's not there. So she has to introduce herself as, I was the winner of the beauty page- uh, pageant and I am the mother of Fong Sayok. And then that simplicity puts a smile to my face because i always love how invested she was whether comedically or dramatically obviously she can do both so there's no certainly no disappointment Uh, uh, she rides uh, a horse uh, with uh, presumably very hot soup in her hand you know for miles and miles and miles and miles (laughs) and then arrives you didn't spill one drop of course i didn't (laughs) Uh, so it's all good the problem there with her character arc and her drama here. And, you know, it's cool that we get core reacting. I don't mind seeing that. And that's also a rehash, isn't it? Of part one. The dramatic connection to a character as the movie goes along. Because uh, there, there, there's going to be things at stake here. And during part one, there was some unexpected dramatic developments involving Josephine and another character. And here they Corey tries to... Yeah, we did drama for the first one. What can we do to inject drama again i think that was probably the point where i thought like you're running out of things aren't you you know and uh, so it, it certainly wasn't as affecting uh, without spoiling part one as that unexpected uh, almost poignant uh, aspect uh, to part one was uh, if you remember offhand of uh, the dramatic uh, sequences in that one so i i thought like even in an in a narrow uh, in a storytelling sense there was um, he he was struggling to fill here, and and his character, Cora's character, I wasn't very clear on the relationship and 
wasn't very engaged in him. I mean, he does appear in action scenes, which is pretty cool. Cora could still move. But I think he was one of the least interesting characters to follow because I wasn't quite sure of um, of his uh, of his stuff. Well, we know of his style, though, which I'm sure you, you want to mention, like the, the funniest gag in the movie involving him, the nerve-blocking style that... Uh, he masters it leads to a very funny gag so you're welcome to spoil that if you like but uh, in 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 general uh, what do you think of Corey and Corey and josephine together and stuff like that i mean it's fine i'm guessing it was a decision made because for whatever reason they couldn't get the actor who played bong sang's dad to come back but it, it it sets up this weird kind of uh morality for the film because i mean she was I, the idea behind her character is that she's a top martial artist, right? Mm-hmm. And her husband, Fong Seok's dad, is not. He's the scholar. He's the the thinker of the family, whereas she's like, you know, the action. and But she's like her son and that she gets in trouble a lot. And so here, without that kind of dynamic sense to the relationship between mother, father, son, what ends up happening is you get Kor Yun here as this character who acts as like he's a lounge about in the red flower society he wants to pass off you know responsibility he's like you know the most important thing is safety safety and safety you know you don't you don't want to get involved Uh, you just want to keep yourself safe and but then you come to learn that he is the older martial arts brother the seeing if you will of uh, josephine sow's character they studied under the same master and it's you know it's because of that student relationship there's hinted at some romantic tension in their history and then at a certain point and that that whole sequence they do like this sepia sequence where they're in these like very old style old black and white cantonese kung fu movie yeah, it's like a buddha palm mo- movie yeah the and they're playing they're playing that music you know that's indicative of those series there um to to establish this kind of old relationship and the two of them you know part ways and Everything. So when they're reunited, it's I guess it's you know kind of rekindling these old feelings. And there's a scene where she gets him drunk, but she gets drunk, and then the next morning they wake up together. It's unclear really if something's happened or not. But it's just like that's really a weird kind of place for the the, the to take the character because the husband's just not there, right? It's like okay. Um, but one of the things that I did want to mention about this film. Uh, about the morality of it, and I'll get to in a minute, um, come, has to do with where sort of Fong Sayok ends up, and, and I'll come back to that point. Um, but Corey Yun, I, I mean, it's it's great to see him on scene. He gets a little bit of, uh, you know, action sequence, and, you know, he's got this secret style. And that's all I'm, I'm going to say is look for the chicken, people. Look for the chicken. Um, because that's... <laughs> if you throw shit his way, then he's bound to hit even a random yeah. object <laughs> you know there's two scenes that made me just kind of laugh out loud one was the <laughs> the miyamoto musashi scene with with josephine and the other was with the chicken so once you've seen that you'll know what i'm talking about <laughs> for once they didn't torture that poor thing for once they used like <laughs> something else like a toy you know what i mean like for once they didn't cut a head off that poor thing yeah <laughs> you know? um so yeah I, I, and it's fine again it just feels like they needed filler and it's a common kind of narrative thread in you know the the older student younger student kind of male female relationship for them to throw that in it gives it a bit of kind of cultural context and nostalgia to older 
MediaWorks, so it's okay. But in the sense of the connection with the characters and what they established in the first film, it still feels a little bit out of place, a little bit out of character, maybe. Problem there is that Corey can hold his own as an actor, but perhaps not dramatically. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen him do well enough in support in his own movies where the writing wrongs. Uh, God, where else is he in? He's in Mortuary Blues, I suppose, again. They're, they're, they're slightly more comedic and action-tinted roles. So, so I didn't think of him as just being old. Just because he's older, he now has veteran acting chops. So I think it's a little bit too much for him to take on for that to be as affecting as part one, at the very least. Uh, but you're kind of right. Maybe you hinted on, at it. That, because it's a basic martial arts movie structure. I get that. I accept that. And within that thinking, that acceptance, and saying acceptance doesn't mean that I block out all the bad crap. It's just that I realize it's not that ambitious. So within that acceptance, I think Jet's trajectory, meaning that he, he doesn't fall in line with the Red Flower Society. You know, he he goes against Adam Chang's character. I won't spoil it all. You know, it's 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 okay. Genre structure touching upon morals and ethics and following your your internal own morals rather than falling in line which then has made us take that leap and that journey with Jet's character who was more of a kid literally in part one he was uh, being silly and uh, competing in track and field (laughs) things like that and here there's uh, slightly more serious stuff by no means any once upon a time in China kind of dramatic poignancy here, but it's um it's an okay journey for the basic little genre movie that it is that boasts some technical impressive stuff uh, where it counts repetitive or not in your eyes. So in, in terms of that character, I I was fine, and I guess to have him be super silly for fifty percent and then serious for the latter half, akin to the first one. That would have been really, really redundant. So I'm glad they took him down and uh, made him take some slightly more mature choices. Uh, but again, not dramatic poignancy 101 or anything uh, in terms of how they portrayed Jet. Any thoughts on that? If you have any, had any thoughts on Jet and that different side of Fong Sayok in this one? It's not quite, he's not quite the mischievous kid he was in the first film. Uh, he's there's a little bit more maturity to the character, but you know it is interesting to see him be put in in between this place between his own sense of right and wrong and and, and that of the society and seeing that you know maybe he doesn't really fit therein with the society. They probably could it felt like there was more they could have done with that, um, and that is a very common kind of trope that tends to come up in these you know these stories about the young sort of righteous hero who's in a rebellious society that's trying to do good, but then is kind of bound up by its own rigidity. There's there's perhaps more there that could have been told, but um, they don't get that deep into it. And part of that, I think, it just comes back to the, the villain character who's just so kind of superficial that it's just like, all right, get on and, and you know, get with your mom and beat this guy up already because <laughs> it's a little bit too much. Yeah, for sure. And And, and this genre had proven that you can have nuanced villains. Again, I go back to Once Upon a Time in China and Iron Robe Yim in the first one, which seems like a stock villain in part, but there's definitely more to it because it's the way Choi Haik depicts uh, 
making your way in that society presents characters with with skill at a crossroads and that character takes the corrupt crossroads a little bit more and here it's more as you've alluded to <laughs> uh, you know he's, he's got a great face i believe he's a mainland actor he's been in shaolin temple and uh, movies like that i've seen him in in zhang jimo movies uh, uh what's his name uh, ji chun hua you know the face is right for these kind of uh, <laughs> these kind of roles you know even the biography yeah. on hkmdb bald guy who specializes in extreme bad guys that's probably very fine and uh, the 90s was kind to him in that uh, in that regard you know he's in yellow river fighter that was 88 though where dead end of seizures um new legend of shaolin even though his credit you know it's always fun to read credits sometimes like he's in that movie poison juice monster uncredited i want to watch the new legend of shaolin right now because <laughs> poison juice monster sounds awesome yeah so uh that's uh but yeah there's nothing really to it um and and as for the ending i i, I think uh, i i like the um the uh the sort of visual atmosphere that you hinted at with uh, jet blindfolded and katanas uh mowing through hordes of uh hordes of opponents which is the the, the repeat there or the extension there is of uh, part one where he used arrows to dispose of uh, multiple foes but it's a pretty neat uh, visual uh, sequence um leading into the final the final wire assisted uh, fight with the bad guy and uh, all of the benches or stools stacked and uh, yeah t- technically it's quite all right it's done in pieces again as they need to but it's worked out um it looks fragile it feels somewhat dangerous even though it's not dramatically pulse pounding or anything but uh, it's a cool as conceived and uh, it's not like a low rent solution to um to get this uh, particular scenario on screen but uh, you know it's an active action frame and i find that acceptable here as well even though this movie passes me more uh, quickly you know it goes in and out more quickly versus uh, versus one but uh, it's okay over and done with in 90 minutes and um, it's acceptable uh, my question to you how can adam cheng look younger here versus sue warriors from the magic mountain <laughs> that's a good question he indeed. looks great yeah, he does. Maybe it's the shaved, shaved head appearance. It seems like maybe it's a bit slimmer, but uh, he looks like he changed about a minute since ni- mm. 1983 versus this one. Yes, it's 10 years, but still. Even in Gunman, he looked a bit uh, different, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I'll uh, I'll leave it to you if you want to share any other notes before we do the availability. Yeah, the final kind of thing that I want to switch back on to comes to this point of morality, which we mentioned, pushing of the envelope with the uh, Josephine character and uh, Corey Yun's character. But where this film ends up, so this film ends up with our hero, uh, Fong Sayok, having two wives now, right? Uh, he's got Tang Ting from the first film, and he now has the Manchurian princess, uh, Amy Kwok, in this film. Um, and it's all one big happy family because they've learned to get along and... You know, so it's it's the best of both worlds, as it were. And it's, you know, it's it's just a weird thing. I mean, this was something that is perfectly acceptable. You know, the idea of multiple wives or concubines for the time period of where these characters are at. Right. But it was a weird thing to see having, you know, a, a main character go beyond uh, the, the monogamous pursuit of true love. 
and really kind of settle with, yeah, I'm going to, you know, and Stephen Chow kind of did this, right, and Royal Tramp. Never seen those, by the way. For some reason, I fear that those are, I always do it with Stephen Chow movies, but I sometimes fear that even the Royal Tramp movies in particular are way too local to, to translate, but I'm sure they're super funny too. So No, you, yeah, you got to take some time to watch them. I mean, they're they're still very funny. They really kind of set the bar for some of the plot devices that that come come afterwards in terms of like you know comedic things. It's still a little bit of classic Stephen Chow uh, for the era, but um, you know especially w- with some of the you know some of the things that he does in terms of some of the pairings and especially in this uh, again in, as it gets in the second film, I won't spoil too much for you. It goes in a similar direction here. The interesting thing is that a year later, there's a film that also does this, but it does it in the modern era. It's a modern romantic comedy called I Want to Be Your Man, starring uh, actually Mrs. Kwok's husband, Lao Ching Wan. I think I've seen that. Is that him, him and Christy Chung? Christy Chung and, and uh, Christine Ng. And it's kind of a police thing. They're chasing a killer, but it's also a bit of a romantic comedy. He's the boyfriend of Christy Chung's character, I think, at one point. And Christine Ng is like his uh, supervisor in the force. But by the end of that movie, like all three are together. And it's like a big, okay thing, right? And you've got, you know, uh, pregnant bellies and everything. And I'm like, is, is this like, because this was a year after Bong Soyuk and I remember watching it and going, wait, is this suddenly the new trend that like, they're trying to push that the leading hero man, super whoever's the hero, whoever's successful, part of that success is in that you can have multiple women and it's okay even in a modern context. The idea of the concubine or the mistress is, is still very prevalent today, but this was really more to the fact that the women were actually okay with this this trilogy relationship. So by the end of Fong Sayuk, for example, you have both of the the wives who are they're like best buddies now. And at the end of I Want to Be Your Man, it's like the, the, the girls were actually in a relationship. I think Christine's, Christine's character started out as like a lesbian character who was in love with Christy Chung and Lao Ching Wan like wooed Christy Chung away. And then he ends up winning over Christine by the end of it. And, and like they're all one big happy family. And it was just this weird time where they were like really going for this. I'm OK. You're OK. We're all OK kind of thing, which was for me, I guess, a contrast a bit to if we look at the Once Upon a Time in China films or you look at, for example, Iron Monkey, which I think came out the same year as Feng Sayok and Feng Sayok 2, but a bit later in the year. It's much more that idea of the monogamous relationship. I mean, Feng Sayok's relationship with um, Rosamund Kwan was very standoffish pretty much throughout the series. You know, this like you know, I like them. I like this person, but I can't really be with this person because of our familial relationship, you know, not really appropriate. And so that kind of paralleling along. And then you've got this kind of 180 with these films. I always found that, you know, very, very interesting for the time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of not gone anywhere beyond that, really. It was just a, a thing for the era that I noticed. And it's not a trend that continued into the 2000s. Um, that I've really seen anywhere. But it was just an interesting kind of little footnote that um, popped up in my mind. Well, today's society, is, uh, all of this can be categorized and nowadays. You know, there's a term for all of this nowadays. I, I'm, I'm not sure in, if in the 90s all of this was uh, categorized as um, 
as clearly, you know, uh, and I'm talking globally, you know. Mm. Uh, so for sure, but the uh, Hong Kong movies at least uh, <laughs> had it in them for a few years and then moved on to other trends, I suppose. Young and Dangerous came around. You can't screw around with uh, <laughs> crap like this. Like we gotta focus on the glamour of it all, you know. So, yeah. You know, uh, Chan Ho Nam presumably stayed with one lady throughout uh, throughout the series. You know, the lady we didn't even mention in Young and Dangerous, Smarty. Yeah. Gigi Lai. Exactly. Who they over they overplayed that uh, stuttering. That was so annoying. They, I, I mean, I, I'm sure people who stutter struggle. But it, it seems like Andrew Lau like uh, do it every three lines, you know, and then they made made fun of her. So entire scenes were like, okay, get on with it, get on with it. She's a nice lady. Anyway, let's do the availability. Feng Sayuk Two was issued twice by Universe on DVD in Hong Kong. First, it was an older DVD, whether in the special packaging akin to Young and Dangerous. Uh, I don't remember, but um, they, they put out a DVD with the cinema print on DVD. So from a laser disc, maybe. And then they did a supposed remaster with uh, optional subtitles and 5.1s around it. But it looked pretty dire, to be honest. A very dark print. So it was a uh, quite a good option. It was released on DVD in the US, um, maybe theatrically at the time, when um, Miramax and or Dimension uh, presented uh, a variety of Jet Li movies. This was retitled to The Legend 2, because Fung Sayuk was The Legend. Uh, it got a dubbed-only DVD release at the time, and uh, Dragon Dynasty did Fung Sayuk 1 on DVD and Blue. As The Legend of Fung Sayuk, now with a Cantonese-language track, but still with a shorter edit. But as far as I can see they never did the same for Fong Sayok 2 and and I can't verify whether there were edits made to Fong Sayok 2 or not uh, that's we, we didn't get a modern upgrade to Fong Sayok 2 is um, is the point um, uh, Hong, the Hong Kong DVD at least the remaster so to say if you go to the US marketplace on Amazon it's quite expensive but the UK counterpart lists very reasonable prices for the so called remaster it's watchable it's just that you expect something better and it wasn't really better than the first cinema print DVD. So it's out there in some shape or form. We got a chance to watch a custom version based on the old Japanese DVD that still stands as the best looking version of the uncut movie. So a friend of mine put subtitles onto that and did the same for the first movie. So they still remain the best looking versions of the uncut Feng Sayok Saga. So Japan coming through again. So that's uh, that, that's that. So I hope you can get it. But uh, we are done for this episode. Starting one fr- franchise, ending another. So uh, do, do, do you remember offhand if uh, 90s and new millennium TV was just filled with Fong Sayok adventures off the top of your head? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I haven't really followed the character on TV at all. I uh, uh, just wondering if it was one of those things that just turned up regardless if you were looking for it or not. You know, it's on TV again. I, I, I would assume that uh, Dickie Chung played the character at some point. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Up his alley. Uh, fits his yeah. uh, comedic, comedic persona. So let us know, listeners, if you've seen Fong Sayok on TV. Certainly in uh, a few older movies. Uh, tons of older movies. But, uh, you know, the third 36 Chamber movie, the Disciples of the 36 Chamber, has Fong Sayok as the main character alongside the return of Gordon Liu as Sante. And uh, then a bunch of 50s and 60s movies and things like that. Uh, even Fung Bo Bo played the male Fung Sayok at 
a few points in movies back in the day where it was common that leading ladies were portraying uh, male characters. So uh, those uh, those are out there, maybe. But anyway, we are done for this episode, and uh, this has been Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network. And for all your needs, in terms of links and social media links and uh, all of that, go to our site. If you have any questions or feedback, the email address is podcastonfire at googlemail.com. So hope you enjoyed, and if you were a first-time listener, hope you enjoyed, and uh, hope you find other shows in the back catalog of Podcast on Fire that you enjoy. So uh, and let us know what you thought. We would love to hear from you. But uh, we're going to move on to your plugging, being the honorary co-host and co-producer. You get the full, firm, 30-minute plug of your show. So go! <laughs> I don't even think I need 30 seconds. We are uh, Comcast.com, and you can find our podcast over there, East Screen, West Screen. So give us a listen, if you will. And uh, during 2018, I will be periodically appearing on East Screen, West Screen, as uh, Paul conceives and executes his uh, fun uh, sub-series that is dubbed Hollywood on Hong Kong, which is Hollywood uh, viewing... uh, Hong Kong uh, via their filmmaking so to say so uh, we, yes. we, we're gonna look at movies and even TV series that featured uh, featured Hong Kong historical Hong Kong or not because I'm not even sure if Paul is gonna go modern Hong Kong but currently it's more historical the forming of Hong, uh, formation of Hong Kong and things like that so uh, we'll see but I'm gonna appear periodically appear on that we'll link uh, link to that on the Facebook group whenever it does appear but at for the time being rather I've been uh, Kennedy, and with me to uh, open up the Young and Dangerous universe and maybe close it out at the same time. <laughs> maybe we're not motivated to do two and three or any other parts. Uh, was uh, Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast? So say goodbye, buddy. Bye bye. <laughs>